listening to Shoot It Now, your weekly podcast about indie filmmaking and big-budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another Shoot It Now podcast. My guest today is Mara LaPierre-Sloop, an award-winning production designer responsible for art direction on Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained, HBO's True Detective, Mara's filmography includes being the production designer for films like Mr. Right, The Whole Truth, Elvis and Nixon, the psycho feature film thriller Split, and of course the series The Alienist, Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, and Mrs. America. Mara, welcome to Shoot It Now. Thank you for having me. That's quite a list, eh? Quite a list that you got there. <laughs> I just got a little tired listening to, to all of that. Sometimes you forget what you've done in the last several years. Well, it's all there for people to read on IMDb. And we're calling you in South Korea in Seoul today. What are you doing there? Um, I'm here scouting currently for a new television series Apple TV is producing called Pachinko, which is based on the novel of the same name. Now, I want to especially talk about your work as a production designer on The Alienist, because the production design and production values as a result are very impressive and authentic. First thing, most people will not be aware that you recreated New York City in the Alienist series in Budapest, which I imagine had its own set of unique challenges and obstacles to overcome. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting, The Alienist was and still is a very beloved novel. Even before I was brought on in this project was considered to be a television series for 20 years, there were attempts to make it as a feature film. And almost everyone you talk to in the industry, at least in the United States, almost everyone has a story of their brief connection at some point in the past 30 years of how it was almost made and what you know, their connection to it. I was initially brought on, um, Carrie Fukunaga, who I worked with on True Detective, was involved and he was writing an, an adaptation of the screenplays for the series. And when I first got the call for The Alienist, I, I had read it years before, but I was actually finishing a project and driving across country to go back to my home in New Orleans. And I, I listened to it on tape and I remember just like, the cliche, my, my nails were literally digging into the steering wheel, not so much because of the tension of the story, but just the enormous pressure of the world that we were talking about having to build and how exciting it was, but also how intimidating it was um, to think about this progressive crime story that's constantly evolving and moving around New York City in 1890. You know, I kind of immediately just dug in and my process usually involves pretty extensive research. And so as soon as I got home, you know, I literally just finished a project and I just kind of, I didn't come up for air for two or three weeks, just doing visual research and other historical research, reading novels from the, the time period. Um, there's really great nonfiction also that's, that's available. And so after that kind of month of gestation, it was like, okay, this is actually really, really exciting. And I felt like I had a better understanding of those worlds from just the standpoint of design and architecture in place. So, you know, it took a while to kind of get the wheels in motion, but then we started pre-production started scouting in New York and Montreal. 
And what became clear pretty quickly was that strategy wasn't going to be practical from a budgetary standpoint. And so we, we actually had an art department up and running in Montreal. We were designing sets. We were scouting in both Montreal and New York. And the decision was made that we wouldn't be able to afford the Montreal unit and the builds there. So we switched gears, went back to New York. And in the strategy then was to do everything in New York. Um, which would have been a much more kind of location-driven show. And after, I think it was two months of scouting, you know, we're, we're piecing things together. And again, we are, realize it's still too expensive. And at this point, I think we had gone through six or seven line producers. And, um, you know, it was just kind of like people just kept saying, you know, it's, and it was pretty true to the 20 years prior where people had tried to make this and it just kept proving to be this unwieldy beast. The line producer at the time said, not only can you not make it here, but you should go to Eastern Europe and make the whole thing. So it's this total wild card. No one, you know, just threw everybody completely off. And Carrie looked at me and said, I think you've got to go to Budapest. You know, like the decision at that point had been, someone had suggested Budapest. And I thought everyone was completely crazy, but I got on a plane and we went and we had a locations team and production company in Budapest kind of scramble to put together a scout based on some reference images that I sent. We got there and within a week, it was pretty clear it was the home that the show needed, which was, which again was shocking. I don't think I ever in a million years would have guessed that, but the 1000 year anniversary of the Magyars and the period happened to coincide with like the golden age, the Gilded Age in New York. So in the 1860s and 70s and 80s, they were building very similar kind of beautiful, opulent interior spaces. So the high end of the worlds that we were in of the alienist still existed in Hungary, in Budapest. And then on top of that, the construction costs were so much more affordable and the craftsmanship was incredible. And so in that week, I had sat down with the production company and broken down several budgets of other shows and looked at examples of the work. And it just became clear very quickly that we'd be capable of building huge backlots to supplement the exterior street scenes, but then we'd also be able to take advantage of these beautiful interiors. It was, like I said, very, very unexpected, very exciting. The aesthetic of the world that you had to build is very gritty and dirty in many places. The authenticity of what you had to build from the ground up is quite remarkable. So tell us about the initial pre-production and what went into the very beginning of working out the look of New York City. I think the conversations we had very early on about design and the vibe of the show, a gritty authenticity, exactly what you're saying. We weren't interested in a stylized version of the period. We were interested in depicting things in their kind of raw form. And in some ways, doing stylized history is much easier because you don't have as many layers, you don't have as many details. It's not like I can just, you know, go to the garbage bin and take out some garbage and it's appropriate for 1890. Even the garbage has to be created. You know, there, and there was so much that we did about that period that's so fascinating about a lack of sanitation, a lack of, you know, garbage pickup and things like that. So it was a very, very dirty, very raw space in New York City at the time. And I think that as storytellers, we're interested in how that kind of affects 
mood and tone and um, how people live in, live in these spaces, how classes clash between each other, what it means to live in poverty, what it means to live in extreme wealth, um, and to see how those worlds bump up against each other. We were committed very early on to depicting that the best we could. And <laughs> occasionally we'd find cartoons from magazines at the Times or just anecdotal stories from biographies or, or from other things. And one of the things we had read was that sometimes the streets were so filthy. There was a neighborhood in Brooklyn where there was a two-story pile of horse manure. Carrie, Carrie can really fixate on details like that. And so he was like, we're doing it. We're gonna, like, we're gonna make this two-story pile of manure somewhere in our streets because I mean, it's so fascinating. In the end, we did not do that, but we did have our between our greens people and scenic artists, we fabricated a whole lot of horseshit to to dress in the sets. Um, I really am drawn to projects that can be so visceral and. The movie Perfume was something that I thought about a lot where it's a, it's a story all about scent and smell. Mm. And one of the things that I really love is just like, you can, it's almost like you can smell these things. It's, it's how things are featured, but it's also about really feeling the textures of, of that time and the dirt. And, and that was something I, 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 was, I really wanted to bring into our story as well. The impact of the chaos of New York City at the time is something that you can really feel on the show and almost taste it, which has got to be a big payoff for any production designer working on a, a show like The Alienist. Yeah. And again, it's something that I'm always very interested and committed to and to the point that I think some people think that I'm crazy. But on the back lot that we built in, in Budapest, there was a lot of people that were not happy that I was doing this, but I'd go with birdseed. And as I walked the set, just to give notes to the crew later in the week, I'd scatter birdseed around the back lot so that, and this was months before we even started filming, but it was just so that birds would start coming so that it, there would be this kind of, again, this interactive quality of nature kind of in the street itself. Unfortunately, it also brought some rats, which, but for me, that was great, but not so great for production who, who wasn't thrilled to have rats on our giant backflop set. The character details are all there. How do you break down a character's unique assets specific to them? Character uh, and storytelling, visual storytelling is really, really important. And, and to me, probably what drew me to the job, my background is in architecture and in design is something I've always been really interested in. But film and television as a medium allows for the integration of design and character and storytelling, storytelling, which is really just the best job I could imagine. It's it's combining so many different parts of, of things that I'm really fascinated in. So, you know, a, a show like The Alienist, obviously there's, there's enormous world building that's required, but it was also super important to focus on details as well about who these people are specifically. And so a lot of the times on any project, what I'll do is after getting the script, I really like to flesh out who the characters are. So there's a certain amount on the page. Sometimes you have source material to get additional information from, but then I like to take it further and kind of create a lush biography of who this person is, like kind of creating the backstory. So for Laszlo Kreitzler, for example, we knew from the novels that he was actually from Hungary and which was fortunate because we were in Hungary. 
we also knew, you know, elements about world travel and, and this kind of intellectual curiosity that was that was really important to him. And so with the set decorator, we sat down very early and talked about what type of art that person would collect. And, you know, are there pieces from his family, like heirloom pieces from Hungary? Um, and we looked at a lot of different like folk artists, um, primitive artists in Hungary at the time, be, again, kind of pushing this intellectual curiosity. He's not just interested in fine art, but he's also interested in the study of the human mind. And so folk art became something we were really interested in. So even just in the artwork that's on the walls in Kreitzler's house or in the Kreitzler Institute, we really put a lot of thought and energy into what types of pieces he was collecting, not just how they would look, but just this kind of engagement in personhood and, and, and how they think and what they curate in, the, in their lives. You know, on a show like Mrs. America, where we had so many icons of the feminist movement, we wanted them all to be really, you know, real people that could be understood in more detail by, by getting to see these glimpses into their environments. And so even the book collections that, that we had in their personal offices or homes were curated to represent their interests you know, what they were writing about, what they were investigating, but also what we knew they studied at university, what their connections, again, in childhood were to, to literature and, and, and other things. So I, I really do try to put a lot of emphasis with the entire art department, whether it's set deck, whether it's the, the design of spaces, into fleshing out um, identities of people. And it, it may not be something that even the audience can see on their television screen, but when an actor goes into that space and they have this totally realized world, I think it can inform performance, even if that's all it's lending itself to, if it's helping make the project better, then, then that's a success. Yes, those small attention to details are never lost on actors, that is for sure. Now, the colour palette is really important to develop, as is the costume department, to sync up the whole world. How would you, as the production designer, develop that all the way through with the costume designer for a show like The Alienist? From the get-go, he has done incredible things. He's working on the new Star Wars series. Like he's just a super talented guy, and I think we really had a mutual respect for the intensity at which we try to engage our worlds, our mutual worlds. And from the get-go, we kind of sat down and talked about color influence on each specific character. Sometimes you want a character to kind of blend into their world and be completely symbiotic with that place and other times you want it to be disjointed and part of that's about the emotional journey that's happening in the scene and then sometimes you don't want to be too precious about it and like you you kind of want chance to let our worlds kind of mix together just like they do in the real world so michael was a really really wonderful person to work with and michael was heavily involved with kind of ensuring an authentic look in the background as well so that you know, people's hair, makeup, um, the extras that were being chosen also kind of represented the period and place. Being able to work with people that are just as committed to flushing out the full world is really exciting and satisfying. 
How did the show come to you? And perhaps as an insightful look into a production designer's very early discussion about what you would bring to the role for a series like The Alienist, how did that initial discussion go? And what was your approach in talking about the world you would need to create and how you were able to articulate that in the process for becoming the, whether or not you auditioned for the role, I don't know, but if you were auditioning, how that whole process unfolded. I had worked with Carrie Fukunaga, True Detective, and we had just wrapped up on a project that actually was never made, but I w- we were finishing up together. He mentioned that The Alienist was something that he was likely going to be involved with and that he, he wanted me to do it. So it was kind of being offered to me. I have to say, knowing the history of The Alienist and how rigorously it had been attempted to be made in the past, I didn't really believe that it was something that was going to happen. But then as it kind of pushed further and further along, it became clear and clear that it, it was a reality. The dynamic I have working with Carrie, I think we're both kind of obsessive about research as a creative dynamic working with him. He is constantly pushing and challenging to think about story, to think about character, to think about um, pushing things further, pushing the boundaries of filmmaking as a medium. And that collaboration is one that it's, it's extremely challenging, but one that I really value. And I think it's some of the best work I've done has been with, with Carrie. When we initially started talking about The Alienist, it was clear that the desire from everybody involved was to try to capture this enormous world that's presented in the novel. But, you know, so for him, this period was something that he really wanted to be visceral and realized on a design level. And so very early on, the discussions were about avoiding a stylized, overly romanticized version of the period and and to really dive into authenticity, which isn't always pretty. And so that was something we were committed to very, very early on in in the process. Mara, often a director might not know the world immediately in the palette and the tonal shifts in color and designs. It's your job to convey that. Can you give, especially directors that are listening to the podcast, a sense of how you initially work through all of that pre-production maneuvering, because that's really what it is, of all of what you are thinking about a show like The Alienist to express that to a director? Yeah, I mean, the thing that is so important, I think, for designers, directors, for everyone to understand is that filmmaking and television making, it's always this kind of um, moving, shifting, adapting animal. And that when I read a script, I very quickly can kind of imagine place and, and time and setting and in detail, but what I can't inform is how it's going to be lit and what type of shots are being considered for the scene and the emotion that's being conveyed in the scene. And so when I envision a story, most of the time I'm seeing spaces without people in it. And so what I have to engage in is the other components of this organism that's coming to life. I can kind of start out with an overall concept of something, but that then is very heavily informed by the cinematographer when that person starts and finding out concepts for lighting and something like The Alienist, where we're just on the cusp of electricity. You know, I think only two or three locations in our entire show had electricity at the time. 
You, of course, are not only working with the director, but the cinematographer plays a vital role lighting for a project like The Alienist. It's a crucial element, given that there's a lot of candles burning. From a production designer's point of view, can you tell us just how important that interaction is with the cinematographer and the key things that you work through on a show like this? Um, So when you think about lighting, I think it was really important to find out if the strategy for, for lighting the show was also to go naturalistic with like what we were doing with the design, which that was the plan in our cinematographer, PJ Dillon out of Ireland. We were both really committed to having this kind of natural feeling. And so most of our sets were rigged with actual gas lines so that we had gas fixtures and our more opulent spaces. And we had oil lamps in our poorer spaces. But I think one thing you have to realize very quickly is that that means there's going to be a lot of darkness. And so that also informs color and texture on walls. It also, you know, kind of clues us in that a lot of our spaces are going to fall off into darkness on the edges. So it's an ongoing process to kind of flush things out and palette in the day, a daytime scene lit with natural light look like one thing, but then at night with an oil lamp will look completely different. So so much of it's kind of trial and error, camera testing, talking things through, understanding costumes, understanding what reflection can do, what what sheen added to paint can do to manipulate a space. It, there's always this kind of trial and error and testing back and forth of how do we amplify what's happening for the characters in those moments, but also flesh out a realized world. And how nervous were you at the time looking at the candles lit for a scene, especially for some of the detail? You might have been thinking, ah, no, I can't quite see that detail, but what do you do? Oh, gosh, yeah. Well, and it's always hard, too, when the final edit comes out and, you know, you you build these huge, enormous sets and then the entire scene is cut together with, like, close-ups and just, you know, coverage of the actors. But those little peekaboos of the world around them to me are just as much part of the world building as like a huge wide master. And I think that one thing all of us have to do working in this industry is like I said, when, when you start a project, no one has any idea what that final product is going to be. And we all put our stamp on it, but it's, it's a moving organism. And even the, the editor, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, there's so much that's out of our control. I think we all have to learn pretty early on that you can't be precious because you won't live a very long life if you um, have to mourn every single one of your babies when they when they die. 1890s New York from an historical aspect alone is quite challenging. And I would imagine that when you realize that this finally is going to happen, how daunting was that at the very beginning when the scale of the job itself sets in and you realize this is actually about to happen after such a long gestation period of the alienist not happening? I don't think I slept for two years. I think that um, I would have kind of waking nightmares of ruining the show because there's there, there was so much at stake with, you know, like I said, this was a really beloved novel and, and there had been so many extremely talented people before me that had, had tried to get this thing off the ground and, and here we were finally making it. So I definitely felt 
the burden of expectation on my shoulders the whole time and um, really was was constantly kind of trying to push myself and our team for providing something that I that I hope people were, were happy with at the end of the day. But, but no, it was a very, very stressful period of time. The series has been adapted from the novel, as you say. It's sometimes a fine line of how far outside the world in the novel that you go versus the world in the screen series and stay authentic. How do you approach that? Because sometimes they can be two different looking worlds. It's true. And I think adapting from source material is always very complicated, or even in a case like Mrs. America, adapting from real people in real life. There's so much that can be, you can kind of hold things up next to each other and, and question why decisions were made to to modify things. And in a story like The Alienist, that's about, you know, most of the crime scenes are actual physical locations that still exist in New York. And you can literally hold a photograph up against to them and, and can kind of question the reality of those things. There, There's a lot of rigor to satisfy the audience that read the novel, there's a lot of rigor to satisfy the historians who want to look at these things and compare them side by side. Then you also just the nature of a mystery where there's crime solving going on. People have the ability to pause and zoom in and, and look at details. And so every little thing can be scrutinized. And so on a show like The Alienist, again, where you're working at such dramatic scales of storytelling in the city, but then also an investigation, you know, we really spent a lot of time thinking about the forensic pathology, the systems of investigation that were available in the time period is the beginning of fingerprinting. There's, there's just a lot happening. And so we hired many different consultants, um, whether it was forensic pathologists, whether it was handwriting or fingerprint experts, but we constantly were kind of questioning and challenging and making sure we were being as authentic as possible. But there's also times where decisions have to be made to make to take some creative licenses to just push the story along. And, and there's, you know, things that you discover that weren't completely accurate from the novel. Like, for instance, the opening crime scene is on the Williamsburg Bridge, but the construction was actually several years later. So there were some creative licenses already taken in the novel. And so then as filmmakers, we have to make the choice, well, do we stay true to the source material or do we go with actual history? So there's a lot of questioning and re-examining that have to happen and choices that have to be made about what's best for all the various parties involved. The 1890s images and how you went about your researching when you, let's say, couldn't find images to inform you for any part of the world that you were creating, did you find that the written word could often breach the gap of any historical photos that you couldn't find? Absolutely. Um, we were very fortunate to be able to work with um, one of our consultants was a gentleman by the name of um, Richard Zacks who wrote a book called Island of Vice, which was kind of chronicled the tenure of Teddy Roosevelt when he was the police commissioner in New York. And I was lucky enough when we were scouting New York, Richard came out several times. And so, I, you know, I went with him to the Tenement Museum in New York and his book is so flesh with details about the different neighborhoods and kind of anecdotal stories of what was happening on the street. But it really helped flesh out sense, a sense of place for our investigation as we moved around the city. 
and he, he was such a great asset to be able to connect with as we went along. And, and again, he wouldn't always have a, a visual to go along with it, but the intensive research that he had put into creating the, his, his book really helped me understand things in a, in a really cohesive way. And with the written word, there is probably more wiggle room for creative license, let's put it that way, to bring something alive. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot more flexibility there to to kind of expand and, and evolve and, and, and make it and put your own stamp on it. And because the series is based on finding a serial killer, I read somewhere that you are jokingly referred to as the Queen of Darkness based on <laughs> some of your other previous work. So it's a genre that you feel comfortable working in by the sound of things. Yeah, it is funny. Um, I had a good stretch there between True Detective and Split and The Alienist. I felt like I was just the person you called when there was a serial killer on the loose. And it's funny because growing up, I read a lot of mysteries and thrillers. And so I don't think my parents were that surprised, but I do think my husband and some friends of ours, the ones that coined the term, the, the queen of darkness. But I'm actually a very like lighthearted, jovial person. And it, as it turns out now, I don't really watch a lot of those things anymore because there's only so many forensic pathology books that you can own and you can stay up at night looking at horrible crime scene photos. At some point, you need a break, break from that world. And essentially, The Alienist is a 10-hour movie. How did the shooting for you and your team manage the time restraints that would have been required on a tight schedule? Because once the the train leaves the station for something like this, you've got to keep up. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always dif difficult, I think, especially when you're shooting television. Tendency is to have multiple directors, multiple cinematographers, and multiple ADs. So as an example, on The Alienist, we had five shooting blocks with different teams, and the only through lines are the production designer, the producers, and like the costume designers, the other department heads. So in television, the onus really falls on those consistent department heads to, to provide a consistency of the show so that you're not kind of, so that it doesn't feel like five different movies, that it feels like it's one cohesive project. And so and sometimes you can feel a little bit like the bad cop that's constantly policing and saying, well, no, no, you can't do that because this person's doing that um, two more episodes from now. And if you do that, you kind of, you expose something that we're not ready to expose. Or if you shoot it like this, it, it reveals something that you're not, you're not supposed to, to see. So it's, it's a, difficult position, I must say, to be in. And on a show like The Alienist, we had two units shooting simultaneously. So you're basically, on any given day, kind of stretched between four or five different sets, trying to make sure that that authenticity is being monitored and consistent. So it's very challenging. Television, every time I finish a television show, I say, I'm never doing that again. And then someone entices me with a really great story. And, and I will say, as a as a viewer, I think that there's long format storytelling is something I'm, I'm very interested in, in. And I think what television is doing right now is really incredible. As an actual filmmaker, I hate it. You're literally prepping, like you said, if you know, with a 10 hour television show, you're prepping five movies simultaneously. And the expectation is this, their movie quality, you know, television isn't was it what it was even you know 15 20 years ago there's the same kind of demand for quality output as there is with with film 
it's a very challenging medium. And I can tell you right now on the project that I'm on in South Korea, those same pains, we're, we're suffering those same pains as we have two teams of people that we're trying to scout all over South Korea. And there's literally not enough hours in the day to make everybody happy. So it's, it's a tough one. I want to go back to Budapest. The backlot sets that you built for the show were, I think, 10 city blocks. How long did it take you to build something as comprehensive as that? And what were some of the challenges? Oh, gosh, those backlots. I, I, you know, I had nightmares when I was doing it, and I still have. I still wake up sometimes um, reliving the fear of not completing those sets. We knew we needed pretty extensive street scenes for the storytelling. And in Budapest, unlike in, in most countries with filmmaking hubs, you don't have one construction team. Every single set goes to bid with a pool of different companies. And then the producers um, work with the, the art department to make a choice. And if you're lucky, you have a producing team that isn't just going to pick the cheapest bid, but you're going to pick the construction company that might be the most skilled at, you know, for example, woodworking, like finished carpentry for an, an interior set. They might be more expensive, but they are going to deliver the best set in, in the most efficient timeline. So for the backlot, because we were under the gun with delivery dates, we knew when we got there, what kind of boots on the ground in early fall, so around October, that we would need to start filming in March. And we still had design work to do. So we brought in set designers literally from all over the world. It was kind of an all hands on deck situation. So we had people from Italy, the United States, the UK, Hungary. It was hard sometimes. I'd walk into a room and literally no one would speak English, but they also didn't speak the same language as either. So it was, you know, just communicating design information was a day to day challenge. But we ended up determining that we couldn't have one construction company build the whole set in time. And so we ended up hiring three different companies and we kind of designated a different area for each of them. So of our big backlot street set, um, we had an uptown Manhattan street, um, which was where Kreitzler lived, um, which had some really complicated stonework and finished detailing. We had kind of a midtown row house section that was less complicated. And then we had our tenement streets that had a ton of exposed brick and, and fire escapes on the facades. So we used the three different companies and they kind of built <laughs> um, simultaneously and we're, we're meeting in the middle sometimes. And we had a few awkward moments where like things weren't completely lining up and I'm glad we weren't building a bridge because it would have been a total disaster. And then my, my biggest concern was having three different companies would, that our paint finishes and our plaster finishes wouldn't be consistent, that there might be some discrepancy in, in the level of craftsmanship. So we ended up bringing uh, a really, really talented chart scenic from the United States. He brought in a few assistants from all over the world. It's a hodgepodge team. And they oversaw all the scenic finishes. They made samples with each of the construction crews so that we really ensured a consistency in the look of things. And then at the end, the final aging pass was done by Richard and his team so that there was kind of one final coat that that tied it all together. And I really think it, it, it turned out well. We were, we were fortunate to have him there with us. 
I love the detail of that because most people got no clue that three different companies, potentially three three different paint finishes, not that they would ever notice, but you would notice. And that is the most important thing. When you notice something, it's got to be absolutely perfect, right? Yeah, uh, totally. A hundred percent. And like, and those are the types of things that I lose sleep over. It's just kind of an erratic paint finish can, will, will drive me absolutely crazy. Um, the, the other thing that we knew is that we'd be, you know, these streets were never static. They always had to kind of morph and play into to something different. So in one sequence, it could be Chinatown in the next, you know, the next day we might be shooting as the Lower East Side and the Jewish ghetto. And so the signage and the sign writing was, was really important. And the sign writing to me is also a huge part of capturing the period in a, in a really authentic way. And so they would come out and paint directly onto shop front windows. Um, we ha- would have them do, you know, signs on brickwork, but then we'd also have them, you know, construct and build sign blanks on metal and wood. And again, to me, that's the part of the job that's just, it doesn't get any better when you have a, an expert team of craftsmen who, you, who can literally make anything that you ask them to. And we're excited by the challenge. And a show like The Alienist, you know, it's not just me that feels the honor and privilege of getting to work on that. I mean, every single person that was in the art department, and we had hundreds of people at the end of the day, they just were so committed and passionate about doing the show justice. And and that's the best thing you can ask for. And as difficult as it was and as challenging as it was to build those 10 city blocks, once the back lot sets were built, at least you could breathe a little easier at that point. Well, what's crazy about The Alienist is the backlot sets only actually were satisfying about 15% of our set list. So it wasn't like, oh, if we just build the backlot, we've done it. We've, we've won. We then had to build Kreitzler's house. Um, we had to build... Uh, you know, on stage, it was a two-story stage set. We built the Kreitzler Institute. We had to build an interior tenement apartment that was six stories high inside on the stage with a staircase for a chase scene. And an entire side of the staircase had to wild for a a shot that was wanted. And then we shot literally hundreds of locations in Budapest that, you know, you can't walk into any building anywhere in the world right now and shoot it for 1890. So just the the work and planning that has to go into a space to remove electrical outlets or wallpaper or paint a wall or even put furniture in. So the backlet was kind of just the tip of the iceberg of, of all the many, many things we had to do. But again, it's like, it's both what makes this job completely insane and, and completely incredible. And another show that you were the production designer on, the Hulu series Mrs. America set in the 1970s with Kate Blanchett's character leading an unexpected fight against the Equal Rights Amendment movement. This looks like a lot of fun, rich colours. The period is a favourite of mine. How much fun and challenges was this bringing to life for you? There's some really wonderful people involved from the get-go that I had been wanting to work with again. And then on top of that, the showrunner, Davi Waller, who um, had been one of the writers on Mad Men, when I initially talked to her, there's just this immediate connection and a similar desire to really authentically depict period. Again, not a stylized version of period, not an overly kind of cheerful version of things, but to really kind of show 
the the reality of what was going on and to flush out these characters into more than just caricatures, but as real people that the audience would have the ability to connect to. And I think part of that initial, the initial conversations and challenges was that there wasn't a desire to villainize anyone in the story, including Phyllis Schlafly, but that everyone on board really wanted to present a just kind of a, a, a real portrait of all the people involved and to let the audience kind of make their own decisions and, and observations about the storytelling that was being made. Mara, it's been great talking to you and finding out about your career today. I really am looking forward to the new Alienist series coming up on Netflix and will follow your future projects with a lot of interest. Thanks again for sharing your work with us and coming on Shoot It Now. Uh, thank you so much, Craig, and, and good luck with everything. You've been listening to Shoot It Now with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.